This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark is brought to you in part by La Petite Moor. La Petite Moor is a Hamilton, Ontario, Canada-based sex toy company operated by Haroon Sperling. A 1NB operation, they are committed to body safety, body positivity, and a gender-neutral approach to their toys. Head to petitemore.ca to check them out and be sure to use coupon code AFTERDARK for free shipping at checkout. Petitemore.ca, adult, queer, safe. Cripple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability, with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark, with Andrew Gerza, shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hey there, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today and coming back for a brand new episode of Disability After Dark. So happy you're here and so happy you want to talk sex and disability with me. And today, not just with me, with a good friend of mine, my friend Claire A.H., who is a storyteller, a content creator. She is somebody who, about two and a half years ago, experienced a stroke. And so we talk about this episode, I'm gonna, and I'm jumping right in because I want to just, there's a lot um, the, that she talks about in this episode that I think is really kind of important. So I don't want to spend a lot of time giving her bio. I want to just jump right into the interview itself. She talks not so much about sex, but kind of about what happened to her with the stroke. And then we talk a little bit about how that, that has affected her sexually and what that means for her. We talk a little bit about her sex before the stroke and then sex afterwards and all that stuff. So I'm going to jump right in and, and play the interview for you. And I hope you enjoy it and I hope you learn a lot. All right, here it is. My interview with Claire A.H. right here on Disability After Dark. Hey, Claire. Hi. What's up? Oh, not too much. Just, you know, living my life, trying to do a million things all the time. Story of my life. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm so happy you're back on one of my shows. Me too. You're awesome. It's so I gave the audience a little bit of a rundown of who you are. 
but reintroduce yourself, please. Hi. So I'm Claire A.H. I am a matchmaker with Friend of a Friend Matchmaking. I have a podcast that I just launched about dating called A Date With, and it's focused on intersectional dating. And Andrew is about to be a guest, so pretty exciting. Yeah. And I also am one of the hosts with Sex City Radio, which is a community radio show, kind of an interview format show about sexuality here in Toronto. I, what else do I do? Um, I'm a community manager with Seven Veils, which is kind of an adult-focused social media company. I do freelance writing. I'm getting into sex and relationship and dating coaching a little bit more. I uh, am starting with O School doing sex ed. I do other kinds of sex ed and public speaking. And amazing! I didn't know you were. I didn't know you were doing O School. I know. I I added it in, so I'm uh, focusing primarily on dating, but then also actually disability and sexuality, mostly just kind of like more 101 introduction stuff, and then talking about intersectional dating and how sex is sometimes involved in that. I think I'm also doing stuff on like. Um, sort of intentional monogamy as opposed to monogamy as the default and um, just kind of discussing fantasies, fantasy fulfillment. So, so I don't know. Many, you're doing all the things. I'm doing a lot of stuff right now and it's, it's really rewarding. Also in school, I went back to school to study psychology, but mostly as it pertained to um, disability, rehabilitation, although not sure I like that world, and um, health. The, right? The, and re- the rehabilitation world is so... It's so weird when the rehabilitation world gets into talking about sex. Yeah. I am looking up, PS listeners, I'm looking up a lot of journals right now for topic ideas. And oh my God, it's the most, it's disturbing when academic journals like that focus specifically on rehab try to talk about sex because it's like they're stumbling and bumbling around and they have no idea how to do that. They don't know. It's unsexy. Yeah. They don't know what formula to plug in disability to. Um, so you've talked about disability a lot Mm -hmm. in the last three minutes, which is great, but we don't, I want to understand how does disability interplay with your world? Right. Yeah. So right now I'm just like, I'm some person who talks about disability for some reason. Well, I'm disabled. So there's that. Uh, I was born able-bodied and lived the first 20 or 28 years of my life completely able-bodied. I had, you know, friends and I was getting to know people in the sex and disability world, which I thought was really interesting, but I felt like I had no place. And actually on May 20th, 2015, I was hanging out with Andrew and we were leaving um, the best sex writing book launch. Andrew uh, did a piece in it and I was doing burlesque and I was like, yeah, I I worked... um, in sex education before, and I worked specifically in the, the adult industry as a an executive and sort of producer. I I really wanted to get involved and kind of signal boost and learn more, but I did not feel like it was my place. And I remember saying, like, I really think it's so valuable. I just don't think it's my place to kind of talk about it as as um it's not my lived experience. And then like six hours later. <laughs> I had um, what was the second and third of three strokes. So the first one had actually happened a week prior, but my only symptom was being incredibly dizzy at the time and then kind of blacking out. So I was just like, it wasn't like I would pass out, but I didn't create new memories. And actually one of the memories that I, I have the most ease in identifying that I had lost was when I performed that number at uh, the best sex writing book launch, I got off stage and I remember thinking, 
well, all my clothing came off. So I know like burlesque, you can mess a lot of things up, but it can't have gone terribly wrong if the things are not on your body anymore. <laughs> but right, I like could right. not remember what happened. I didn't remember how I felt on stage. I didn't remember the reactions. I didn't remember anything going particularly terribly or particularly well. I just kind of like, it was like someone took the tape of my life and just deleted that, you know, six or seven minutes. Okay. It was really weird. So that morning around like six o'clock in the morning, uh, my partner, now husband, was going away for work. So he had to go into the office early and then go to the airport. And I kissed him goodbye and I walked back down the hall, went to the washroom. And by the time I was coming back down the hall, something happened and I was dizzy again, but I wasn't just like quite dizzy. I was astronomically dizzy. I was having difficulty walking. I just like everything felt like it had actually been flipped upside down. And that is not a great feeling. But I got down the hall kind of leaning on things and I got back and I actually looked in the mirror and did the uh, fast test, which is the the test you do to identify if you had a stroke. Uh, they've now created the B fast test because B balance and E eyesight did not used to be included in that. That's something that's happened over the past like year or so. So fast refers to face, so looking for facial asymmetry. Um, A for arms, so lifting up your arms and being able to lift them both. S uh, talking and looking for like real slurring or just like major changes. And then T time, because if any of those things are happening, time is of the essence. None of those things were happening. I did have balance loss issues and uh, my eyesight was blurrier than it used to be. So I was having a stroke, just not according to the warning I had kind of learned about in PSAs growing up. And I lay back down in my bed and that's really not a great idea. And I lay there for a second and I thought, okay, maybe this is like vertigo or maybe this is a new expression of a migraine or you know maybe I'm just really really sick and in a way I was I had had a second stroke obviously but you try to find you know you try to find the you justify like I was recently really sick and I did the same thing for like 10 minutes where you're like, no, it's all right. I'm just overreacting. I'm just going to okay. sit here and let it pass. Let this terrible feeling yeah. I've never felt before pass. <laughs> sure. So luckily I did eventually say like, no, I'm going to get up. And I had been experimenting with not having a, a cell phone at that point because I broke it in January of that year, which like I was trying to get tickets to a Sufjan Stevens concert and I reached for my phone really fast to to key something in and I knocked it off the table and I was kind of like I became one of those smug awful people that was like I don't need a cell phone I live in the moment uh, I did that this morning this morning to go get groceries I literally did that I was like I don't need it I'm gonna leave it at home and I'm just gonna go and then 20 minutes later I was out in the snowstorm that is Toronto because it's January mm-hmm. and I got stuck in my wheelchair and I was like fuck <laughs> really would be good to like let somebody know where you are right now get a little help maybe <laughs> yeah so i get it so among things where you really do need a cell phone getting stuck in the snow also having a stroke so yeah. i managed to somehow like 
despite the fact that I was still upside down world level dizzy and my eyesight was really impacted, go from my room to the adjoining room, which had my compu- my desktop computer, because I didn't have a laptop either at that point, and get onto Google Voice and call my parents. And nobody's expecting a call from me at six o'clock in the morning morning because I'm not a morning person. And uh, they picked up and they were like, hey, what's going on? And I was like, something is happening. I don't know what, but it's really bad and I need you to come here. At that point, I was not yet at, I should be in an ambulance zone, although that quickly came because they said, oh yeah, okay, right away. And by the time you know, we got disconnected. I was sitting in the office chair and I had the third stroke, which was like the big one. And all of a sudden I was like, I didn't feel connected to the universe anymore. I just felt completely, you know, outside of my body. Uh, I had also, it had triggered like profuse vomiting. I couldn't feel large percentages of my body. Um, just everything that was already happening got worse. Yeah. And they got there, realized that um, my door was locked and obviously I could not come in to let them in. And I had recently moved in with my partner, so they didn't have a key. So did they, did they have, did, did like sexy firemen have to like break down your no. door? No. So luckily, although they didn't have the key, they did have my husband or my, my partner at the time's number. And so they called him and he, you know, he was almost at the office, but he turned right around and got there, opened the door and they were, <laughs> they came in and they were like, something is happening. And it was very clear that Things were not okay, so they called 911, and um, luckily I live very close to the regional stroke center, and a few paramedics got there, took my vitals, and they were saying, yeah, this is a stroke. And I remember, in so far as I had very limited faculties, saying, like, no, this isn't a stroke, like... Of course, it's not a stroke. And they brought me down the stairs and they put me in um, in the ambulance. And there's always like, I live in a neighborhood where there's always like older dudes hanging outside these like, they're bars, but they're open all day. And so like, just like we had to like bust through a crowd of guys like smoking and swearing and spitting on the street <laughs> in the gurney, <laughs> get me into the uh, ambulance and then Luckily, it's actually the same street that the uh, the stroke center's on, just kind of a couple neighborhoods away. We got there, and they were able to identify that this did not seem to be a stroke created by a clot. It seemed to be a um, – it was still an ischemic stroke, but it was uh, – it was uh, because of a tear in my vertebral artery, which is just, if you think about the back of your neck, there are a few arteries that go up and they go up to the brain and something had happened. I had injured my neck slightly, not so badly that I felt it, not so badly that it was any traumatic injury, but I was doing a lot of dance at the time. I was upper less performer. So I had like four gigs that month and just meant I was practicing a lot. And so maybe I flipped my head the wrong way and it caused this little nick in the artery, which causes blood to pool, and then it just all kind of goes to the brain. So while it's not the same as a clot, it's a similar, like the end result is fairly similar, but it means right. that the typical clot-busting drugs that they'd give you after a stroke would actually just cause a further dissection. 
Oh no. And make things way worse. So yep. luckily they figured it out. They gave me some like an MRI, CT, a few other tests and kind of just said, okay, this is what's happening. Unlike strokes where there's a clot busting drug that can make sure that, you know, that can reverse some of the damage and can make sure that there, like if there's been a smaller stroke, there are no bigger strokes. There was absolutely nothing they could do. Except just be like, hey, buddy, don't move your neck too much. (laughs) And that was sort of the next, like, two months of my life. I was in the hospital for about 10 days. I was in uh, the stroke ICU for a couple days, then moved into, like, out-of-one-to-one care, but to, like, still a fairly small population being cared by uh, one team. And then eventually I was moved to a more general uh, floor And then I went to rehabilitation and initially my stroke symptoms were, I mean, I still have a lot of lingering stroke symptoms, but, um, no feeling from the neck down on my left side. That remains a very little feeling on my right hand and the right side of my face. That also remains (laughs) my voice. I have a paralyzed vocal cord, but over the years, my larynx has started started compensating because the body is amazing. But initially, I couldn't really be heard. Um, yeah, I had a I, lot. I remember of- when we, when you and I first started like talking after the stroke, your voice was about an octave higher than it is right now. Yeah, because the only way I could be heard was by pitching my voice a lot higher, because that's the only thing that would sort of cut through. Actually, being where I am now, my vocal cords didn't make contact. I guess. Um, I have lots of friends who do speech language pathology and they've tried to kind of explain this to me and I'm just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I had that. Uh, I also had one thing that is pretty much resolved is right-sided weakness because I couldn't really use any, like my limbs on my right side. I couldn't, um, lift my head on that side. So I couldn't lift my head at all. Cause you can't just do that on one side. Um, I had, uh, I still have dizziness, but at the time it was so profound that even the slightest movement, like if I was lying on my back and I tried to just rotate, not even to be on my side, but even slightly, it felt like someone had taken my bed and like shaken it profusely. Even later when I was in wheelchairs, like a couple months out, if I, if, if I turned even like a quarter turn too fast in the wheelchair, like if someone else moved it for me it felt like the, like it felt like an earthquake and very unsettling. I had a lot of nausea and vomiting. Um, I still have eyesight issues, but at the time I had an astagmus in both eyes, which is where your, your eye kind of keeps tracking and beating. So on one, on one side it was horizontal and on the other it was vertical. So it was just like, it's bad enough when it's one or the other, but it's like I I couldn't really focus my eyes on anything ever so reading was out of the question like to a lot of headaches and pain at first um I don't even know well yeah so balance was the biggest thing I couldn't because of weakness I couldn't stand but even once I that was starting to resolve I couldn't stand even with my legs far apart um just I would fall right over and it's because the injuries happened in my medulla and my cerebellum and the cerebellum among other things is the balance center so it also has to do a lot with like reaction time so being able to walk and then stop I can't really do if someone throws something at me people are like heads up 
nope, <laughs> can't do it. So it's kind of funny now, but it's obviously it was frustrating for me because I was a burlesque performer and that that is something I haven't really picked up again, even though people are like, you can do it. I'm like, yeah, but not the way I used to do it at all. I'd have to re-choreograph everything. And that sounds kind of sounds like a lot of work. And um, my first degree was in opera. So not being down one vocal cord, it just a lot of the things that I uh, really loved were profoundly impacted. Yeah, and so one of the things that I know you love, because we talk about it all the time, is sex. Yes, I'm and, a big fan. <laughs> to, and I mean, it's definitely part of your professional uh, persona and what you do. So how did, tell me about your sex life before the stroke. It was great. I mean, I, I had moved in with my partner and we were in a position where just like we had been dating long enough that we knew each other, but um, you know, we were still young and in love and we were still young and in love, but we were in that really mm. exciting phase of just like possibility and, and we've gotten to know each other. So now there's so much room for development. And I just, I had come to a place where like, I'm also, you know, I'm plus sized and I, I think I had a lot of challenges with that growing up, but I, I got to a place where I really loved myself and I really understood my sexuality and I felt just very confident and very beautiful and very sexy. And all of a sudden to, to not just not have that same relationship to my body, not because I didn't think I was sexy, but because everything of the way I moved through the world, all the things that I enjoyed doing were kind of off the table. And most crucially, I can't feel anything on the left side of my body. So that includes any erogenous zone. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then there's stuff like, you know, post-stroke fatigue, which I still am dealing with. It gets better over time. But when you have major energy issues, having sex is, it's not easy. It's, and also when you're recovering from a stroke, it's not as much of a priority because it's really important. But, oh, I, oh, <laughs> I always forget things about my stroke now. I couldn't swallow. For the first like month and a half, I couldn't swallow. So I was able to sort of get down what they refer to as honey thickened fluids, but I couldn't eat and I couldn't drink. And that was very frustrating. And that was for me, although sex is very important, all I wanted in my life was like an apple and some Perrier. And even now yeah. to this day, every time I have a refreshing beverage, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, there was a time yeah, when I yeah. couldn't do this. I've been on um, no food and drink times in the hospital where they have to have a tube down your nose for fever and stuff, and, and you can't eat. And all you're craving is like, I remember the day when you're in the hospital and you're like, and they're like, "Hey, it's the, the one day you can have broth." You are the most excited person in the world to have that broth, and it's literally like chicken water. But you're like, I don't care. This is amazing. Oh yeah, so, like I I never had my own room in the hospital or well in hospital, I guess, but not in rehab. So and nobody else that I ever lived with had a problem with eating. So by the end, I would have like taken someone down for their their like shitty hospital food. Oh yeah, low plastic. I've been <laughs> I was there. Like, What's that disgusting mush? Give it to me. <laughs> when you said honey thickened fluids, I just thought. My my brain clicked on and thought, well, I can think of a, a substance that's around that consistency that you yeah, could. Yeah, but I don't think that's sustaining in the way we'd like. No, <laughs> Mostly for not. me, one of the things they had was like these little containers of thickened water. 
what is what okay what so it's first a thickener of all, agent what? and it's like in this water and it tastes like a wet nap Oh, it's like you know if you let if you left like Jello out in the sun for a really long time, but it was it just tasted like a really like it tasted like a whisper of Mister Clean. That's what it was, and I was like, uh, I'm fine, you know. <laughs> I was big into I couldn't I couldn't just like put um an ice cube in my mouth and let it melt, but I could put an ice cube in my mouth for a little while. So it was kind of like ice chips, but not so much that it melts and becomes water and I can't swallow it. I also right. had a, you know, like when you go to the dentist and you have a spit suctioner. Yep. I had one of those for like two months. Wow. Yeah. Cause I couldn't swallow my own spit. It was yeah. a really it, like people are all like, and it is true that when it comes to disability, it's really important to look on the bright side and to kind of, to not stigmatize it, but there were certain things about my experience that were really hard to get used to not being able to eat, having to suction my own spit and just like not being able to move without feeling like Godzilla was like walking up to the building and shaking everything. Those yeah. were, those were all very hard to deal with, I think. And so when I had a recent hospitalization uh, and I talked about it on the show, kind of, I, I had C diff, which is totally different. Not the same thing at all. But, but I did. No, yeah, it was horrible. It was the worst. And I was having feelings about like, okay, how is this going to change my sex life? When you were like, when you were like in the rehab with the spit suctioner, like, were you thinking like, okay, fuck, how am I gonna like? My first thought would have been, how am I gonna get the blowjob now? How am I gonna like? That would have been like, because when I was sitting in diapers with the C diff, literally my first thought was, who's gonna fuck me now? Did you have any of those thoughts about your? body and sex during the time it was happening yeah like i mean i think one of the things was that having a partner who was just really supportive without being condescending was lovely because i wasn't as worried about the who but i was definitely worried about the how like if i felt like am i going to kind of lose contact with my sexuality am i going to be able to do any of the things that i have grown to enjoy because it's not about like yes you can adapt you can enjoy different things and and move towards that but there is something to be said for the fact that for 28 years I cultivated a strong sense of all the things I enjoyed not just sexually but in general and and prioritize those things and work towards having like a a strong connection to those things and then the vast majority of them were no longer an option so some of them I have had to let go by the wayside others I've been able to sort of recontextualize and yeah, so it it there was a period of time where it was just not on my radar because I was like, okay, nobody can understand what I'm saying. Um I I don't know what's going to happen. Also, there were there was a period of a few days where my oxygen stats were really low. And they thought I had a pulmonary embolism. I turned out to not, but it took a really long time for them to figure that out. And the problem okay. with that was that um, the treatment for the pulmonary embolism is not dissimilar from the clot-busting drugs. So it was the same thing where, like, okay, well, you'll die if you have this, but also if you take the medication for this, you'll die. Oh, wow. And I was like, like, cool. And so I just couldn't really breathe. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. So you were like, yeah, sex is not the thing that I'm thinking about yeah, right when now. when you're on oxygen and you have a spit swallower and you can't lift your head. And I was just like... I was very discombobulated and I, there was no point where it was always clear that I was sort of 
I didn't have much cognitive impact, but just the experience of the brain injury, I, I couldn't focus at all on anything. I couldn't really have conversations beyond just like a couple words. I was mostly just in and out of I'm consciousness, alive. having terrifying nightmares because apparently that's how my brain was working this whole thing out. Oh, that's rough. I didn't yeah. I didn't know you had the nightmares of Teddy. Yeah, I, I rarely talk about this, but actually when I closed my eyes, all like even when I was awake, all I could see was like really severely mutilated faces. That's horribly terrifying. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing about in stroke literature that's like you will have terrifying dreams and <laughs> every moment of your life will be a waking nightmare. That wasn't discussed. Oh. Wow. No, yeah, that, it was that's just like really, really graphic, violent images that were just like for some reason what I could see when I closed my eyes. It was only a oh, few no. days, but a few days is more than enough. Yeah. 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 A couple of seconds is more than enough. Like, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, right? <laughs> when, you, when you were, when you were like doing all of, when, when you were having all of that stuff, Tell me about your partner being there for you. Like, what was that like? Well, he was amazing. It was very frustrating time uh, timing because he had just started a job that he still has and he managed to make it work. But it's a job that requires a tremendous amount of hours and travel. And so he was he was able to kind of mitigate that so he could be with me. And while I was in the hospital, I could have someone with me overnight and he stayed with me every night that I was in the hospital. Once I moved to the rehabilitation center, that was no longer possible, but he, he made sure to be there right after work and he would finagle it. So they would let him stay a little past visiting hours. And we had nice dates, even though I was not feeling, (laughs) I was not feeling great, even though we didn't really know what the future would hold for me. And so that certainly, impacted our relationship's potential well not its potential but the way it was gonna look for sure right we just kind of had fun and he'd you know put with the simpsons on his laptop and we'd watch the simpsons and once i could eat a little bit more he would bring me whatever i could eat um towards the end of the rehabilitation i was able to to go on passes and we'd just go out and we would wheel like he would push my wheelchair and he was very sensitive. He wasn't, he wasn't irritatingly sensitive and asking me if everything was okay all the time, but he was just like conscientious. He's, he's a good driver. So it kind of didn't surprise me that he would be a good wheelchair uh, pusher as well. And we just go around neighborhoods and we'd look at cute little shops and we'd see dogs and we'd see strollers and it was just kind of nice. And eventually I was able to eat again. So we'd go and we'd, we just go get Vietnamese food and, you know, go around the neighborhood a little bit or go up to there's this pretty rooftop garden and hang out there. It was just it was it was a way of seeing that life could still be OK. And I think that both of us look back on that time really tenderly. Yeah, because, I mean, I think what you learn when you have um, and again, I learning from my own experience of having having a sickness on top of disability mm-hmm. and having that come kind of out of nowhere, you learn to take those little moments and really make them something important. Yeah. And also just being able to see somebody who it wasn't like he was pretending that he wasn't nervous, but he was able to not put that on me and he was able to still show up. That's something that a lot of people are not capable of doing. So it was nice. And uh, we wound up staying together. We got married, 
all around thumbs up. Amazing. Um, okay. So let's move back to the sex set, the sex part of this. Mm-hmm. How did you feel after the sex after your stroke? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's like an ongoing project. I don't feel the same as I used to. Literally, I do not feel the same. There's not the same physical sensation. But also, I think my relationship to sexuality has become a little more complicated. I do feel like I have aged a lot because of the stroke. My life has sort of shifted in my priorities, my energy levels. I would say maybe it's more tender and more loving. And we've certainly done a lot of work to still be connected and still be imaginative I've I think I've personally had a lot of difficulties just kind of enacting fantasy enacting you know things beyond this moderately vanilla just because it's a lot of work it's to have scary. sex now yeah it's, yeah it's scary but also just like the it almost always feels like you're starting again every single time as opposed to picking up where you left off. And I feel like I don't have maybe as much access to just the comfort around sexuality that I used to have. It does. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's, it's created maybe a space for more vulnerability and more, I don't know, humanity in a sense, maybe it's not, you know, I'm not living Cosmos 50 hottest tips. Now I'm just living like two humans who love each other Figuring it out. Wouldn't that be the best Cosmo article in the world? Two humans who love each other and go. Like, <laughs> I would love to do that. That's kind of how it is now. And it's fine. And it's and it's lovely. And it's wonderful. And I think I would like to get back into being a little more adventurous. But I also would like to get back into a lot of things in my life. I would like to find a way to return to music. I would like to find a way to return to dance. But those things are going to look different. And also I have a lot, I have a lot of other things on my plate right now. And I sort of have to not only do what will bring me, what has brought me joy, but will currently bring me joy because maybe the experience of going back and relearning how to dance would be validating, but also kind of painful. And going, whereas going to school and taking classes around like that, that are going to help me to advocate for myself and others to write more about disability, to do more work around intersectional dating and relationships. So those are things that are really validating for me and, and feel useful for others. And that's important. Yeah. You said at the top, I was just thinking back to what you said. You said, you know, the night of your stroke, you were, you were kind of, you were kind of getting to know the disability community a little bit at that time, and you you were starting to, you didn't know a lot, but you were learning. How do you feel about it now that you've kind of, (laughs) and I'm gonna say it, I feel like you're now a part of our community, and I think you, I think you would say that of yourself. How do you feel now that you're a part of it? I mean, like, don't have a stroke. (laughs) <laughs> but if you have to, it does – if you're already interested in disability, it does give you a much more nuanced understanding. And, of course, I will never know what disabilities are like for other people. I acquired mine in adulthood. Mine uh, – like my – I use a cane. My mobility aid is useful, but it's not the same as having a wheelchair. Um, 
and it's not the same as many chronic illnesses. I don't have a lot of cognitive impact. Uh, my physical impact is sort of scattered. <laughs> so I don't, I have a lot of moderate stuff instead of some things that are more severe and some things that are less severe. Right. Um, yeah. So I will never know exactly what other people's experiences are like, but it certainly granted me more comfort and fluidity with talking to other people with disabilities and uh, also just it's, it's kind of enabled me to focus on finding things to read, finding podcasts like yours, finding people who are talking about disability and getting a better sense of the different experiences, the, the broad spectrum of people with disabilities. Right. One of my most favorite things that you do is every, when you host, tell me something good here in Toronto, every single time now you mention your stroke in some capacity and you always say when you're, when you're up there that, Oh no, I know, I know I've mentioned this before, like, sorry about it. And I'm always like, no, don't be sorry. Like it's, 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 I'm so glad you do it because it forces that audience to be like, Oh, she doesn't look like she had, you know, she might not look like she has a disability. And when you lay that out there in, in, relation to like sexuality and talk about that in the, in those stories, I always feel like I'm safe then to tell a disability sex story because if Claire can share that, then I can also share that. So I love that you have made it. Like I love how quickly after your stroke, when we started getting to know each other a little bit, how you really quickly were like, Nope, disability is a part of this now. How do I make this part of this narrative? Let's go. That was really refreshing for me to see. Well, it changed, it changed up my life completely and not just in a bad way, also in a very positive way. And I've been bolstered by the fact that I do know a lot of people with disabilities and specifically people who uh, talk about sex and disability. And even if you look at Tell Me Something Good, which is uh, the, oh God, I didn't mention Tell Me Something Good at the top of the show. That's bad. Uh, I host a a (laughs) monthly sexy storytelling night along with Samantha Fraser. February is going to be our fourth year anniversary. So, uh, and since May 2015, which is, I guess, like two years in, I have identified as disabled and pretty much, like, we tell stories at the top of the show and pretty much every month I'm like, for those of you who don't know, I had a stroke and then I launch into some story related to or tangent. Somehow there's a relationship to sex and the stroke. Um, And Samantha also identifies as chronically ill. She has fibromyalgia and chronic migraines and she often talks about that too. So it's kind of cool that we're both in a position where we don't shy away from having these discussions, whether they're difficult or sometimes funny, honestly, sometimes funny. Yeah. I mean, I love when you talk about your stroke and the way that you just, you don't necessarily laugh at it, but you laugh with it being like, this is what happened. And it's, it's funny. And here it is. And I think to put that in the context of like a sexual storytelling thing, cause, and it's nice to go to that event. If anybody's in Toronto listening, come to the event it's amazing um when you go to the event to know like because when when i was first doing it before you identified as disabled and before i knew that before i knew that um samantha also identified as disabled i often felt like when i was telling those stories i was like the only one in the room telling a disability story so now to know that there are at the very least two other people with disabilities in the room or who identify as chronically ill or disabled it's nice to, to there's a little queer disabled family kind of there yeah hanging out and honestly nice. like there are there are more people and i think more people are being open about it 
that generally speaking in the room, there will be a few of us and it'll feel uh, just in general, we try to make it a place that feels comfortable to talk about whatever your intersections are and we can only do so much and sometimes that has to do with the judges we have the way we market and just like being very clear about zero tolerance for being disrespectful to people people's identities so it it's not perfect for sure but at the very least we're trying to to provide an inclusive atmosphere for people to be vulnerable and tell their stories yeah and i think those stories are so um are so valuable. Speaking of stories, do you have any post-stroke sex stories you want to share with me right now? Oh, wow. Um, huh. I don't know if it's a story as such, and hopefully he's cool with me telling this, but even just last night I was, um, I came back from hosting Sex City and before before the stroke and really mostly before my relationship with my now husband, I identified as dominant, somewhat switchy, but definitely I had a dominant streak. And when I say that we were getting to the place before the stroke where we were not just getting to know each other, but getting comfortable, I was only just starting to express that side of myself. Because when you're dating somebody who doesn't necessarily like completely identify as kinky, there are lots of other things you do first. And that's cool. But the stroke, I think, impacted my confidence a lot and my ability, not like my ability to advocate for myself, but my ability to feel good about saying like, okay, let's try this. Because really anything, when I'm so tired and I'm so kind of disengaged from my body, anything seems great and it's okay to kind of let the other things fall by the wayside. So I... Yeah, um, I just didn't really focus on it that much. But it's something we've talked about. It's something we've explored in little ways. And I came home last night to uh, <laughs> my partner in the process of trying out these cuffs that that we had uh, we purchased on our honeymoon. And it was just this lovely thing of coming in and seeing that he was doing the work to 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 help me access what I want when it's hard for me to do it myself. I mean, and there's something sweet. There's something really sweet about that because I know your partner a little bit. I, like, I know he's the sweetest, the sweetest. He, like, so that's, that's like, that's awesome. And I think that you guys can share, not, not, not even in the kink of that. Cause saying kink like that makes it sound like it's a kinky thing, but just to share in that moment together and to know that he was like, I know that Claire wants to do this. So I'm going to make sure that this is a thing. That's really I think that's so important because typically you as a disabled person, and I know you and I have talked about this before in other avenues mm-hmm. where you as a disabled person had to walk your partner through the sex you were having when you didn't even know what was going to be going on. Yeah, now, hard. Yeah. Now to see where you're at a place where he can kind of anticipate what might be happening and what you might want to do with each other. That's just cute. in those little moments. Yeah. I think in the, in the, in the retrospective of your sexual journey, those moments will stick out the most. Yeah. And it's also, it feels like permission for me to kind of go there and, and, and to know that it's going to be a collaborative process. It's not just going to be me also just in general, like from, from a perspective of somebody who has at times identified as more dominant, seeing somebody being willing and enthusiastic that's attractive to me. Seeing somebody doing something because they want to be good, that's attractive to me. And Is it, it was, more or less attractive yeah. to you because you're disabled now? 
Um, I don't know if it's a, it's, it's not for the same reasons. Like just those behaviors sort of associated with the dominance, um, are, are attractive, but it is attractive from the disability perspective to have a partner who listens and does things that are caring and takes initiative and is, is as open to collaborating on what I might say is a difficult, sometimes imperfect process as I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I just did an episode for this will probably go two episodes after the one I just did. I just did an episode about planning for sex and how much mm-hmm. I love scheduling things for yeah, sex. Great. Which I and the idea for that actually came from coming to a Tell Me Something Good session and hearing mm-hmm. another friend of ours tell a story about making spreadsheets and I just was like, This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, I have re- I have referenced that article so many times now. <laughs> so many times. So good. So good. So um we that I don't know even know what I was gonna go, gonna say with that, but planning for sex now, I think as a disabled person for you, is that like do you do you look forward to that now? Is that something like has your views on spontaneity changed a little bit now? Yeah, and I think also my partners have really changed because my partner is very kind of live in the moment and you know it, you don't need to plan everything. You don't need to make a, a zillion lists. And in general, I am more type A than he is. So we right. have always had that kind of playful stru- struggle. I would say we're both Ernie, but if you were to say Bert and Ernie dichotomy, we shift back and forth. But in terms of like the planning aspect, I'm definitely the Bert in the relationship. <laughs> I always think about things in terms of Muppets. Our actual Muppet couple characters are uh, Gonzo and Camilla, the chicken. So. <laughs> Amazing. That's accurate. When you think about us, that's pretty accurate. Uh, but so I think the disability has meant that you do need to schedule to a certain extent. That spontaneity, while it can happen, should not be seen as the best way to have sex or the best mode of sexuality. Because when you're dealing with pain and you're dealing with energy differences and and you just don't always feel sexy or capable of having sex the way you want to. Booking time can be useful. Planning ahead can be useful. And being more amenable is nice. Yeah, completely. And as listeners will have heard by the time this comes out, I give a bunch of reasons why planning for me turns me the fuck on. Um, I also like talking about, I mean, I'm a very talkative person obviously i'm on a podcast right now i have a podcast i have a radio show i tell stories um i like talking about sexuality i like talking about it both as sort of like a four what foreplay is not the right word but sort of as a precursor to other sexual acts or just even when sex isn't necessarily going to happen i like geeking out to it so talking about my wants and needs and kind of getting there slowly and and coming up with these ideas and we might be bookmarking for later. That's all very, not just hot, but like it feels like essential to who I am maybe and how I am around sexuality. Yeah. And to like letting your nerd, letting your geekiness and research nerdy things fly. Like I've been listening. The Part of the reason why too, I did, I just did episode 69 on, <laughs> on pl- yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Unplanning was because I've listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, mm-hmm. and for some reason, this is a totally weird tangent. But for some reason, that makes you like go out. That makes you really get into research and really want to like re- like write things down. And then I somehow connected the two of them, and I was like, "This is a great topic." So 
I'm glad that I don't know how true crime got in there, but whatever. I'm glad that, that you can use um, disability to talk about sex even if you're not going to have it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's just, it's an important thing in my life. And I want to be able to share that with my partner. And so to have somebody who is receptive and enthusiastic and who has really done the work to see different modes of approaching sex as being just as valid it just takes a lot of having to advocate for myself out of the equation. I don't need to say this is valid too. He knows it's valid. He gets it. And maybe initially he felt a certain way about spontaneity, but he also sees how that is. Spontaneity is for the the young and the able-bodied and people who don't have other things that they need to concern themselves with. And maybe we're not those people anymore and that's okay. It is totally Okay. And maybe able-bodied people should also, too, like, not worry about spontaneity so much and, and hmm. see the and see the sexiness of planning, which you'll hear all about when if you go back to episode 69. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. So, Claire, you're awesome. Do you have anything else you want to tell me about, about sex, disability, your stroke? Um, Honestly, probably not. I find, like, I talk about it all the time. And maybe I would just talk all of it out. Not completely, but I just, I'm I'm glad to have an opportunity to, to speak about it on your show. And you have, you've definitely been instrumental in this sort of, I don't know if I want to say reckoning process, but, but coming to terms with what it, it means to be disabled and to still be involved in sexuality. So thanks. Anytime. And I'm so, it's so nice to know, like, it's nice to know that my little thing, because when I when you know you're you're a podcaster, you're a storyteller, but you know when you create stuff and you're like, I'm just gonna put it out there, and no one's gonna listen to it. It's fine. It's out there. To know yeah. that it's actually made, like to know that it's like pinging off people and making an impact is really blows my mind every time. So thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me on the show. Anytime, and you, I want you to, I want you to come back maybe with maybe with your partner because he that would be an amazing interview. That would, that would be, be great. great. I um, I love any opportunity to talk with him, so I'll definitely do it on a podcast. That would be uh, we'll find a way to like weave the topics in a little bit differently, but it would be great. Uh, how do people get a hold of you? Ooh, um, so if you want to just learn about me in general, I'm at claireah.com and Claire A H H H H H. That's five H's on Twitter, and then um. I'm with Friend of a Friend Matchmaking, which is friendofafriendmatchmaking.com. My uh, podcast is called A Date With, and it's adatewithpodcast.com. It's also A Date With on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean and SoundCloud. We're still waiting on Spotify and Google Play Music, but those are all up. Um, I have a radio show called Sex City Radio. We're on... um, CIUT, which is 89.5 FM in Toronto and the surrounding areas. Every Tuesday night, we have a website, sexcityradio.com. And then I also do the monthly storytelling night on uh, Wednesday nights at Glade Bookshop. That's uh, Tell Me Something Good, and that's Uh, (laughs) tmsgstories.com. I think that's all I have to plug. That's all I have to plug (laughs) right now, hopefully. So many places, so many things. (laughs) And both Andrew and I are going to be presenting at Playground coming up February 23rd and 25th. So we're both going to be talking about disability, going to be talking about sex. Uh, I will be talking about dating a lot. 
I'm going to do a live podcast episode of this podcast right here. Yay. I don't know how to do one. So Claire and I are going to, we should talk about that. Oh yeah, we should. Cause I, I can definitely hook you up with uh, my tech stuff. Andrew doesn't know how to do these things, but listen, you're, it was so fun to talk to you and thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing all those things. Of um, course. I know we veered off the, the sex topic, but I felt this was really important to talk about the other side of disability and more of not, not the medical side, but the lived experience side of disability. Yeah. Outside of just sex. And I really love that you were able to do that. So thank you so much. Of course. Like it's, it's sex and disability. So theoretically it's both. It's both. Um, Claire, I could talk to you forever. You're awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks. What I love the most about this interview, I think, is that we don't really talk a lot about sex. We talk a little bit, but we talk more about how disability feels for Claire and kind of coming into the identity of disability and what all this means for her around sexuality and her body and the way that it feels. And I think what I what I was thinking about when I was listening back to it was the title of this podcast, this whole show, Disability After Dark, was meant to be a play on the, the taboo of sex and disability, but also, I think, shining a light on how people feel about disability when disability enters their life in whatever way it is. And I think this interview really underpins that with Claire, and I'm so glad that she could and was willing to share those feelings with us around not only sexuality, but her, her welcoming into disability. All right, so that's another episode of Disability After Dark, and I want to thank you so much for shining a bright light on sex and disability with me. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgrizzle.com. If you love the show and you're listening to us on iTunes, please, please, please rate and review us so more people can find the show. You can also follow Disability After Dark on all the socials. On Twitter, we're at DisAftDark. That's D-I-S-A-F-T. D-A-R-K-P-O-D on Twitter, or of course you can follow me directly at Andrew Gerza or on Facebook at facebook.com slash disabilityafterdark. If you want to support the program, you can do so via Patreon. As little as $1 a month helps me keep this show going, and I can't thank you enough for all your support. You can pledge at patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Crippled Content Creations 2018